What's up, Hyperfast Nation? On this episode of the Hyperfast Wealth Show, I talked with a special guest who is a multifamily investor. She has a $100 million fund and offers syndications into singular assets as well. So we talked about the difference of that as well as what you should look for in deal sponsors. Welcome to the show, Vina Jetty. Welcome to the show today, Vina. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited too. I know, I know you're on a lot of podcasts, so I'm glad you're <laughs> able to squeeze this one in. <laughs> I am, I am. I, I like to talk a lot, so it's a good fit. <laughs> well, I'm excited to talk about your funds, your, your syndications, how you help people connect with really great multifamily real estate projects. Before we do that, though, why don't you give people a quick bio and, and just a little information about how you got to where you are today. Yeah. So like you said, I'm Vina Jetty. Uh, my company's name is called Vive Funds. I'm based out of Dallas, Texas. Uh, we have a little under 600 million in our portfolio currently across Texas, Florida, and Georgia. Uh, we're large multifamily owners and operators. So we don't look at anything under 200 units at this point. Um, we really focus on that value add space where there's a way for us to not just optimize the efficiencies on the asset, but also to renovate and force some appreciation on the asset as well. Um, as far as how I got started, so I took a little bit of a shortcut because my mom is a very successful real estate investor. Uh, my parents retired early from their real estate portfolio and, um, so I kind of had a really good foundation. I grew up in this world graduated from uh, the University of Illinois Chicago when I was 20 with my degree in finance, thought I was going to do something revolutionary, not work for the family business, and I went into corporate real estate. And so uh, I left the corporate world several years ago, almost a decade ago now, um, and started my own shop. And that's how I'm here now. Awesome. Well, it was, it's, it's always good to have, I think, exposure early on, which seems like you did through, through your, your family. Um, how, so how, how was it when you, you broke out and, and set up your own shop? Were you nervous, scared, or, or already had a lot of, you know, contacts, <laughs> investors lined up or, um, or deals no, lined up? I, I, yeah, no, it was terrifying. Um, <laughs> basically once you take in investor dollars, you just never sleep again um, because now you have a responsibility to someone else's money. So when I left corporate America, I actually started by investing for myself. So our family just invested alone. Uh, I had a lot of friends and people that were just in our social circles say, oh, wait, how, how are you doing this? Can you teach me how to do this like on the weekends? And I'm like, no, you work a hundred hours a week at your busy job. And this takes me a hundred hours a week to do. So no. Um, and then it turned into, okay, well, why don't you just put your, or put, take this check from me, put your investment out, and then I'll just co-invest with you. And I was like, okay, maybe, 
but I didn't really know what the SEC rules were. I didn't know what the structure should have been. So I reached out to our SEC attorney who said, yep, here's how we structure, got us all papered up correctly. And that's really how I started taking capital. Uh, so it was not planned when I left the corporate world to take in investor capital. So you just you just got good at finding deals and, and executing and, and other people saw that and kind of wanted to, to go along for the ride? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, it's really what happened because for me, the challenge even today is not in capital. The challenge is finding those deals that you want to put your name on and that um, investors can invest in confidently. I, I heard you, you know, say earlier in the intro, you're, you're doing some sort of value add. So are you, you know, the, seems like the typical multifamily syndication right now is like they're buying deals at like four caps, even lower on some I've heard. Um, I'm guessing if, if you're doing some type of value add, you're, are you able to, to push a little, a little higher than, than that? Or, or what's your typical deal? <laughs> I wish, I wish. Um, you know, at this point, because because we look at 200 units plus, we're really going after institutional quality assets. Um, so right now, the latest asset that we're putting into our portfolio is a 2011 build. It's barely 10 years old. Um, it's 296 units. It's an $81 million purchase. So it's a sizable asset, but it's an institutional quality asset. And so cap rates on those types of assets, I wish they were in the 4% range like that would be great at this point but we're in the hottest market we've pretty much ever been in and so um any asset that we're going into today we're seeing cap rates compress like crazy we're not seeing five percent so we're going into those like b plus plus assets in a locations now if you're going into like a b minus asset or a c asset then yeah i would assume you're going to see closer to like five maybe somewhere between five and six percent on the cap what um what 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 kind of markets are you in? I know you mentioned Florida, Georgia, Texas, I think. So are you are you in more of the urban areas if, if you're in these kind of yeah, B plus so cap rates or post COVID, we've seen really an influx into more suburban areas. People want nicer amenities, they want more room, they are home with their children all day, so they want to be able to um, have multiple bedrooms or they're working from home. So they want to have another, um, they want to have another bedroom for an office. And that's really what we're seeing in our tenant base too. So with that, um, we're primarily right now, we've been acquiring in Atlanta, like crazy, the Atlanta suburbs, like crazy, uh, not by design, but we, the last three assets that we've gotten have all been in that $80 million range in Atlanta, um, over the last year, post COVID. And our fund, so Rev Fund is set up to do offerings in Texas, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Arizona. That's so that's one fund. People invest in that, and then that fund then goes and acquires multiple yeah. projects. Yeah. So it theoretically it works like that. In practicality, the way it works is so it's a hundred million dollar fund and we source the asset first and then we accept investments into the fund. So there are the fund is designed to be a five to seven year investment with five to seven assets in the fund by completion date or by complete um, investment. Hold that thought for a second. Do you struggle with how to scale your real estate business? 
without trading your most valuable asset, your time, for money? If so, Carrie and I want to help you. Since March of 2020, we have doubled our sales and tripled our profit. And we want to help you grow your real estate business in a smart way at the Hyperfast Summit in Boca Raton, Florida on February 1st and 2nd, 2022. We're bringing together top real estate leaders to help agents from all over the world. Go to hfasummit.com for tickets. Again, that's hfasummit.com for tickets. So if, if you find a new asset to, to go put in the fund and you need 10 million of equity to, to buy that asset, you'll go out and raise an additional 10 and then kind of repeat the process. Is that my Correct. understanding? And, yeah. And so not all of it comes through RevFund. So we usually do a direct offering on the asset itself. So let's say we're buying one, two, three Main Street. And to your example, we need 10 million of equity. We might put 5 million of equity through RevFund and then 5 million directly into the asset. So it's really, RevFund was born as an answer to the investors that were wanting to have more of a set it and forget it model, more diversification across their investments. Someone who could plan every quarter to add 50,000 or 25,000 or whatever that looks like for them. Um, they wanted to be able to plan that on a little bit more regular basis, which is why RevFund was born. So then you're in, when a new asset comes up, your investors could go directly into that or they could go to this, this fund, which is diversified into, into more yes, exactly. projects. And what's, what's the difference in like the kind of return structure or to, to investors for, for each of those models? Yeah, so to investors, it's, there's no difference, um, mainly because we underwrite to the same metrics, whether Rev is the investor into the asset or you're invested directly into the asset. Either way, we need to hit our projected returns. So if it doesn't underwrite to the metrics of the fund, then we don't offer it in a direct offering either. So is it a, is it a preferred, either way, is it a preferred return plus some waterfall kind of? Yeah, so we have um, we have two investor classes, either in our direct or our rev fund um, that primarily are where investors come. And those are 8% on class A shares with no um, additional revenue share after that. So it's just a straight 8% pref. It's more of my investors that are closer to retirement, maybe want just more of a coupon rate. That's what they go into or they blend. Um, and then my class B shares are a 6% preferred return with a 70-30 split. And then typically we'll have a hurdle at around 12% IRR, then it goes to 50-50 between the sponsor and the LP. What, what do most people like better, the, the single asset model or the, or the fund model? Like what's, really what's your funny. kind of split between that? Yeah, it's funny that you asked me that because I wasn't sure what the answer was gonna be. Um, and something interesting happened that I did not anticipate. So what I had a lot of was investors that invested into Rev and then they saw an asset in Rev Fund that was coming into Rev Fund and they're like, oh, but I really love that asset because I went to college there or my cousin lived there or whatever. And so then they invest into both. So they'll go into Rev Fund and let's say they put like $100,000 there. Then they'll say, but I also want to be directly in the asset so that they're increasing their position in the single asset. So it's kind of the blend of both for them. Uh, so I've seen a lot more of that. I, did, I didn't even think anyone was going to do that before we put that offering out. And then on my investors, I see more investors coming into the direct asset. And I think a part of that is... Um, 
my investors write fairly sizable checks and they want to handpick their investments. Uh, whereas my JV partner, her investors come more through Rev Fund because they like to allocate those large checks on a more regular basis. They want to just put it in and they like the diversification. So it's really investor dependent. We see both, but I surprisingly saw people coming into both on the same deal. Yeah, I think I think people like being able to see like one one project or asset and yeah. uh, knowing that it's tied just right. to that. You would you would think they would go with the diversified model probably more than they end up doing, but yeah, no, that's true. And it's the weird thing is it's I think it's because in Rev it's like a theoretical asset that's going in there, right? It's not defined which assets or you only know the assets that are already in the fund but you don't know what's going to come in in the future so i think it's just interesting and it's it's been weird to kind of see the movement and we're seeing a lot of influx into multifamily especially but real estate in general because it's an inflationary hedge we're seeing what's happening in the stock markets we're seeing inflation happen we know that housing is very i mean this is such a hot market it's so hard to buy assets so we're seeing a big influx into the multifamily space which is historically a very stable asset class does the does the um the, the prices you have to pay you know the, the, to, to get assets does it does it make you nervous at all or or do you think we're in such an inflationary environment that you know rents rents are gonna go up which of course drives up the, the values yeah the I, I mean it's obviously something we do a lot of analysis on we don't just go out and pay a price. Um, it doesn't make me nervous in the sense that we're pretty conservative in our underwriting. So as an example, we have a deal that has 100% interior renovations available. It's nothing's been done on it. And we're, we underwrote it to a $300 post-renovation premium. But on a weighted average, these units are $548 below the nearest comps. I, a lot would have to go wrong in order for me to really miss those projections. And so we underwrite to where we're going in. And when we underwrite the deal and we're acquiring the deal, we don't go above our top limit. We have a hard stop and we stop, we walk away. Um, so we're willing to wait and not go into any assets if it means waiting for the right asset. So we don't try to force it. We're not fee driven in that way. Uh, this is not you know, going to put food on my table or not, if we do a deal or not. So um, it's a little bit different for us. So yes, I am, I, I am always cost conscious. Uh, we're also always looking at replacement costs. So if there's something I have to exit at a replacement cost that is, if the replacement cost is much lower, um, then that's a problem because who's going to buy an asset and it might happen, but it's just a risk to take If you're in today's market, you'll probably have someone who'll buy it. So it really depends on what you're looking at, who you're exiting to. We have very clear exit plans on all of our assets. Hey, hold that thought for a minute. Are you a real estate agent in the DMV area or thinking about becoming a real estate agent in the DMV area? Why not join the highest selling team in the DMV. The Kerry Scholl team is hiring more agents. We have the best training systems, the best culture, and the best environment to get you to the next level, whether that's starting out and getting to six figures or getting from six figures to 250 or to half a million or even beyond. Go to kerryschollcareers.com. Again, that's kerryschollcareers.com. 
And what what is your your value add or operational strategy when when you buy an existing asset? You know, I think the last one you mentioned you said was 2011, so I assume it was fairly rented up. But what do what do you you and your team do? You know, once you buy an asset to to make it more profitable. Yeah, so we buy only stabilized assets at this point. So we're not new dev where we have a lease up period. So our investors see cash flow from day one of closing, uh, and we actually pay out within 90 days post close. Um, we also pay out on a monthly basis because I'm a glutton for punishment. So we add extra work, we pay out every month, but our investors like it and we want to make sure they're taken care of first. But from a value add perspective, there's a lot of ways for us to go in and add value to any asset that we acquire. So on a 2011 build, for example, 100% of the units are classic units. The area has $100,000 median income and $300,000 to $500,000 homes today in that market. So what we're going to go in and do, we, we've underwritten for over $11,000 per unit, and we're going to go in and we're going to renovate it and we're going to bring it up to market because once we bring it up to market by adding, so there's laminate right now, we're going to move it to granite. We're going to replace the flooring and put in some nicer flooring. We're going to upgrade lighting, stainless steel, all that stuff, because that tenant base really demands it and they'll be willing to pay for it because the asset is really nice. And it's a stable asset. Um, and so when we go in there, we add that value to it. We start pushing rents. And we're seeing it on other assets, especially in that submarket where tenants are paying an additional three, four, five hundred, six hundred dollars. And that's way above where we even assume or underwrite the deal. How how do you do the the renovations? Do you you kind of do them during as tenants turn over and leave or or yeah, so typically what we'll do is we will renovate the units when we get a notice to vacate the unit, we'll go in, we'll renovate it and we'll bring it back online at a higher price with new pictures and, you know, make it look polished and pretty with our model units show what the renovated print or interiors look like. But we also in this market, we've been seeing a lot of tenants that are just paying the pricing increase without renovating it. So we're not expending the CapEx dollars and we're getting the premium that we wanted. So it's always great. Interesting. Well, um, you know, it, it seems like this this trend is going to continue for a while. I, I don't I don't know anything that's gotten cheaper <laughs> over the last year or two. Any really product or service. So, um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's 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 kind of fascinating though that you'll get some people that'll just just pay more without the renovations. <laughs> yeah, no, that you, that definitely is happening, and it's because. A lot of times they don't want to move. They don't want to be inconvenienced. Maybe rental prices haven't increased in you know a year or two years. And there's really, the markets that we're in have just such a huge demand and not enough supply. There's not enough uh, units coming online. There's not enough building permits. So this is really a supply and demand issue that's driving this along with you know the inflationary um, effects that we're seeing in the economy. So I don't think that this is a bubble per se. It's not like 2007, 2008, 2009, where we saw that bubble burst due to, you know, subpar lending practices. This is really just a supply and demand issue, not anything else. What do you think, you know, if people are out there listening and, 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 and I know we're throwing around a lot of terms and whatnot, but they're, you know, let's say people are considering investing in 
something like this, whether it's with you or, or someone else, like, what do you think as the investor, the important things to look for in the deal, the operator, like how, how do you go, go about making sure mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're making a good investment? Oh gosh. Yeah. There is a lot of due diligence that I think investors should put into um, investing in these types of deals, because the reality of it is, is the barrier to entry is very low. So there are a lot of operators in this space that I see underwriting and it kind of scares me a little because to your point, they're paying for assets that don't really have a great business plan or strategy behind them. So you definitely want to vet your sponsor pretty carefully. You want to know who you're investing with. Um, You want to make sure they're following SEC rules. So you can, um, there's a website called edgar, edgar edgar.gov. You can go there. You can see if your sponsor is registered with the SEC there on their offering. Uh, Make sure you ask them for the name that they're registered under because it may not be the exact name. Like mine wouldn't be under Vive Funds. We create entities for our projects. So um, there's a lot of different ways you can vet sponsors, but you know, talking to them, interviewing them, understanding their strategy, asking whatever questions you have. And then also I ask sponsors before I invest with them, how much they have co-invested into the deal as well. Awesome. Well, those are, uh, I think all, all great questions to, to ask and, and things to look into. Um, before we wrap up, I always like to end with a, a hyper fast round. If you're ready for some rapid fire questions and answers. Okay, let's do it. What's your biggest piece of advice to a new real estate investor? Oh, that one's so easy. Get started right away. Don't wait for the perfect time. It's never going to come. There's always going to be a reason why you can't. So start figuring out why you can and get started. All right. What's, what's a mistake that you see successful real estate investors make? Okay. Wow. We, and we, this is supposed to be fast, right? Cause I have a lot of these. Um, no, I think that the biggest mistake in today's market that I'm seeing is very aggressive assumptions on underwriting and where you actually can perform on your deal. And if you do that and you don't deliver for your investors, your investors aren't going to be happy. And this is a very short-sighted move to make in my opinion. So don't be fee driven, make sure you're investing with the long-term picture in mind. What's the biggest challenge you've ever had in business and how did you overcome it? Oh, I've had lots of big challenges in business. Um, I think that one of the big challenges for me was um, in rolling out Vive Funds because I am the decision-making partner in that company. So the buck stops with me at the end of the day. And I think that was very intimidating, but I'm glad I did because I've realized that in being able to control the deals myself and being able to decide what we do, where we do it, when we do it, it's actually given me an opportunity to grow and perform better than I've ever performed for investors. What are your favorite investments uh, outside of real estate? If you have any. (laughs) Yeah, no, I do. Um, So you know, I, I kind of like jumped a little bit on the cryptocurrency train, just like a, just a teeny little toe in the water. Um, and then I also, I invest passively into other syndications that um, like I invested in a, a movie production studio, the real estate and the business of it. Um, it's done phenomenally. I invested into like an assisted living facility. I've made some tech startup investments. Uh, so those are, I like those types of things. Um, they've been fun to play with. 
Awesome. Last one. Where do you see yourself 10 years from now? Oh gosh. Um, you know, if you asked me this 10 years ago, I did not see myself here. So it's hard for me to say, but what, where I really want to be is I want to, um, step out of maybe the day-to-day -day activity of the company, have a CEO in place or a COO in place and really focus on the strategy and the investor relations and the investor um, experience of my company. That's really what I enjoy the most. And so I want to make sure that I'm giving my full attention there. Um, and building out my team appropriately, and then also being able to take some more time with my family and my kids. All right. Well, thank you so much, Vina. This has been great. If people are listening out there and want to learn more about your funds or um, you know any any particular assets they might want to invest in or just connect, uh, how should they do that? Yeah, so you can go to my website. It's vivefunds, V-I-V-E-F-U-N-D-S.com. And I have an investor portal there. You can see our offerings. If there are any open at that time, um, you can schedule a call with me there or you can find me on social media. I'm pretty much on like everything as Vina Jetty, V-E-E-N-A-J-E-T-T-I. Um, I'm on like, you know, Instagram, Clubhouse, Facebook, all, all of the things. So Twitter, you can find me pretty much anywhere on social media under my name. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. If you guys are listening out there and want to learn more, you go to, it's vivefunds.com. Is that, is that correct? Vivefunds.com, correct. Go to vivefunds.com. And uh, Vina, thank you so much for being on the show. And to all our listeners and viewers out there, thank you. I'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Hyper Fat Show. Subscribe to us if you want to make sure you get the latest and greatest Hyper Fat Shows. And remember, we love reviews. Reviews help us bring better and better guests and improve our shows. So give us the good, the bad, and the ugly. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we will see you next time.